Hi, this is Janie, and you're listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi there, everybody. Welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and it's my joy to be with you. Thanks for taking time to be here. It is Sunday, August 21st. Today, we begin a brand new sermon series called God Goes to War. Over the next nine weeks, we're going to go through the entire book of Revelation. You heard right. That's 22 chapters in nine weeks. It's going to be epic. Now, today's sermon is called Standing Against Evil, And the main scripture is Revelation 1, verses 1 to 11. But in actuality, we're covering the first three chapters of Revelation. Now, you'll see these three chapters are often seen as being separate from the rest of the book. But they're not. And understanding that is foundational to studying the rest of the book. I'll tell you so much more in just a few minutes. But right now, join me in an opening word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this amazing opportunity we have to go through your word today in this series called You Go to War. God, teach us from your word today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Today I'm going to teach you a little about something that's called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the description of how to read and understand the Bible. When I was taking Bible classes, I had a professor who told us that whenever the Bible had a lot to say on a given topic, almost every scholar was in agreement as to what the Bible said about those topics. But whenever there are only two or three verses on a given topic, there will be lots of opinions by lots of people on what the Bible meant. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, probably a familiar scripture for you, tells us, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So, as it said, all scripture is inspired by God. Or, as some other translations read, all scripture is God-breathed. It's all good stuff. Every verse and every chapter has power and meaning. But a few years back, it occurred to me that although every verse is God's word, God has a tendency to spend more time and ink on certain things than he does others. Have you ever noticed that? For example, Genesis has 50 chapters and covers a period of about 2,000 years. As you can imagine, there's a lot of early history that Genesis doesn't tell us about. But by contrast, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy have a total of 137 chapters and cover only 120 years of God's history. So, the book of Genesis covers about 2,000 years and four books Exodus through Deuteronomy cover 120 years. Where's God's focus? Where is he spending his ink and paper? Well, obviously on those four books. That's not to say that Genesis is not important. That's not what I'm saying. It tells us of the beginnings of God's creation and of Israel, and it lays out the foundation of everything else we believe about God. But the next four books focus on God's righteousness and his expectations of his people. Obviously, God felt it was important to spend his ink and paper on telling people these things. Now, the Old Testament can be divided into three sections. There's history, poetry, and prophecy. 
The history section consists of one long continuous story from Genesis through Esther, 17 books in fact. The poetry section is only five books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. And finally, the prophecy section is made up of the remaining 17 books, the five major prophets and 12 minor prophets. The history books make up about half of the Old Testament and the prophecy section takes up the other half. Now, God used poetry because it speaks to people in ways that other literature can't. But let me repeat, the history section is almost half of your Old Testament and the prophecy section makes up almost the other half. Why? Well, the history is valuable because it shows how God interacts with his people. And the prophecy is valuable because it shows God's judgment on nations and more importantly, it tells us that somebody's coming. And who's that somebody that's coming? Come on now. That's right. Jesus is coming. Now, let's go to the New Testament. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have a combined 98 chapters that focus mostly on the last three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. The book of Acts has 28 chapters and covers 10 years of church history. Where was God spending his ink and paper? That's right, on the Gospels. And that makes sense because the Gospels tell us all about Jesus. It doesn't mean the book of Acts is not important. It just means the Gospels are more so. The Gospels lay the foundation of what everything else in the New Testament is all about. Now, let's look at how God constructed the New Testament. God gave us five books of history, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And then there are 21 books or letters telling us how to live our lives as Christians. So, five books of history versus 21 books telling us how to live. Hmm. And how many books of prophecy? One. Revelation. Where is God spending his time in ink? That's right. God is mostly focused on how we should live. But now, if you listen to the TV or social media evangelists, where do they spend most, if not all, of their time? They make lots of money on their books and teaching videos and appearances, but they focus primarily, if not entirely, on this one book of prophecy. Revelation is an important book, and all scripture is inspired by God. It's all valuable. But Revelation is not the place where God spent most of his time in ink in the New Testament. Now, let me be perfectly clear here. Any church or preacher that spends the majority of their time focused on Revelation is not, in my opinion, balanced. They are not focusing on the things that God focuses on, and folks, that's not healthy. That being said, what's the purpose of the book of Revelation? Well, most TV evangelists like San Antonio pastor Dr. John Hagee will hammer away at their audience, telling them that they must believe what they teach about Revelation, or they are labeled heretics. They'll wave a newspaper in one hand and a Bible in the other and tell you they know exactly what Revelation's images are all about and almost everything in Revelation was meant only for now. This is nothing new, folks. People have been doing this for centuries. People have been trying to make Revelation point to their time period for the better part of 2,000 years. They've even gone so far on occasion as to tell you they know exactly when Jesus was going to return. Seemingly everyone from Sir Isaac Newton to the Jehovah's Witnesses, from Baptists to the Assemblies of God, to some Christian churches and churches of Christ. They've tried making predictions about Jesus' second coming, and they have all been wrong. 
If anyone tells you they know exactly what Revelation is talking about, don't believe them. Teachers like that have never been right in the past, and there's little reason to believe that they'll get it right this time around. And that's okay. It's okay not to understand everything about this book of prophecy. I know I don't. Jesus will come back when he's ready. And even if everybody who is a Christian gets it wrong about the particulars in Revelation, they're still welcomed into heaven. But scholars have repeatedly missed the boat on Revelation. And I think the reason most of these people have missed the boat is because they've missed the real focus of the book. When I was in graduate school, I took a class on eschatology, the study of end times. In the first class, the professor told us to read Revelation from front to back several times, in fact. He said to get to know the book so we'd have a better feel for what he would be teaching. So I took his advice, and I read the book all the way through. And as I read it, I was left with one significant impression that was this. Revelation was prophecy that God intended to be an encouragement for the church. It was meant to encourage God's people that he's got a plan and Jesus is coming back and that in the end, we win and Satan loses. Every part of the book of Revelation has a purpose in that message. So when I decided to preach this series on Revelation, I asked one of my mentors for advice on how to approach it. He kind of sighed and said, bro, why don't you just preach the first three chapters about the seven churches? I told him, I don't want to do that. I really want to preach on the whole book, not just the three chapters. And he said, well, fine. Why did you ask me then? You're obviously not going to take my advice anyway. LOL. As I was reading through Revelation, I suddenly realized that a lot of preachers only preach on the seven churches, and then they skip almost everything else John wrote. I don't know why for sure, but I believe they do this for a couple of reasons. First, I think they're afraid of the rest of the book because it's intimidating, and I will admit it is. And there's a fear that, since they don't understand all the imagery, they're going to get a lot of things wrong. I know I was there for a lot of years. The second reason is that it's almost as if they believe that the first three chapters of Revelation has nothing to do with the rest of the book. It's almost as if these seven churches had nothing else to do with the rest of prophecy, and that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, why would Jesus spend three chapters of Revelation addressing seven churches? That's three chapters. There's only 22 in the whole book. Why use up that much ink and paper if the seven churches have nothing to do with the rest of the story? Now, these seven churches are real churches facing real challenges and difficulties. They have to deal with false teachers, immoral members, persecution, and imprisonment. These are local churches with local problems. But Revelation is a prophetic book of epic proportions and worldwide implications. It describes how God intends to deal with Satan and for dealing with a world filled with wickedness. Open to Revelation 1 verse 11, because here Jesus tells John, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So why spend three chapters on seven churches that have nothing to do with the rest of the book? Well, because they have everything to do with the rest of the book. There's an old fable about the angel Gabriel talking to Jesus. Maybe you've heard it. It goes like this. Jesus has just risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. And Gabriel is standing in awe of the Savior. And he asks him, Jesus, you've been to earth and walked among men. You've taught them and healed them and cast out demons. And then you died and rose from the grave to forgive them their sins. 
What are your plans for sharing this wonderful news with the rest of the world? Jesus responds, Well, there's James, John, Peter, Andrew, and others. They are the ones I've entrusted with my message. Gabriel is thoughtful for a moment and then asks, But what if they fail? Do you have a plan B? Jesus says, No, there's no plan B. These people are my plan. As Jesus introduces these seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, he says they are the plan. He's basically saying that these churches have everything to do with God's plan to deal with Satan and with wickedness in this world. You see, every local church is part of a mighty army for God. Every individual Christian is a soldier in the service of the king. We are the front line in the battle to take back this world. And God calls each and every Christian and each and every local congregation to stand in the gap and say to Satan, you shall not pass. We won't allow it. Don't even think about it. There's an old story from ancient history about an invading army that nearly destroyed Rome. They had swept down from the north and because of their numbers and fierceness, they had intimidated Rome's forces to the point they had crumbled. There was now only one obstacle that lay between them and the conquest, the bridge over the Tiber River. According to a story, a man named Horatius stood in the front of that bridge and he held back the enemy while his friends destroyed the bridge behind him. There were only enough room on the bridge for a couple of enemy soldiers to attack him at any given time, and Horatius suffered several wounds as he held them off. But he refused to yield. He held the bridge long enough for the, his army to destroy the bridge, and only then did he dive into the Tiber and swim back to the safety of Rome's shores. One man taking a stand against an entire enemy army. Over and over and over again in history, we read of this kind of heroism in war. Individual soldiers or small groups of men taking a stand against the enemies and turning the tide of battle. That's what God is calling us to do. He's calling us to stand against the evil, to stand against Satan, to do whatever it takes to turn the tide in the battle for righteousness for God. You can sense the importance these churches have in God's plan by what Jesus says to them. In Revelation 2, verses 2 and 4, he tells the church in Ephesus, I know you don't tolerate evil people, but in verse 4 he says, I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. In other words, they've lost that loving feeling. They've lost their first love. Then in verse 13, he tells the church in Pergamum, you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me. But then in verses 14 to 16, he's upset that they've permitted false teaching to enter the church. In verse 18, he tells the church in Thyatira, I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in all these things. Then in verse 20, he says, but I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. And it goes on and on and on. And in Revelation 3, 3, he even warns the church at Sardis, go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly and unexpectedly as a thief. He's telling them they need to take their role seriously. They're not a bunch of local churches in various towns. They are part of a mighty army standing against the forces of a powerful enemy 
and they must never forget who they are. But too many churches do just that. They forget that they're not just local churches. Too often local churches see their whole goal as keeping the doors open at any cost. Several years ago, I remember reading about a church where the board refused to stand against evil because they were afraid someone would come and burn down their building. Well, I've only got one thing to say about that. Any church that loves their building more than righteousness deserves to lose that building. I've known churches that looked the other way when their leaders became immoral because they were afraid they'd lose the money that people give. You know what I say to that? Let their finances shrivel up and die. Any church that loves money more than God deserves to go broke. I know of one church that allowed a false teacher to continue teaching because he threatened to leave and take a bunch of families with him. He intimidated the elders of that church and basically bullied them into submission. Then one day, that church hired a new minister. Once he learned of what was happening, he sat down with those elders for a couple of meetings and convinced them that what this man was doing was wrong. Finally, the elders got some backbone and told this false teacher he was no longer allowed to teach that heresy. So the teacher left and took one family with him. From that day on, the church grew into a mighty congregation. In fact, they have three services now and over 1,400 members. They are Crossroads Christian Church of Joliet, Illinois. As I was reading through these first chapters, something caught my attention. Every time Jesus addressed one of those congregations, he said this, Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Revelation 2, 7, 11, 17, and 29, and then chapter 3, verses 6, 13, and 22. Seven times he says that, over and over and over again. Why? Because they're just like the rest of us. They have the same struggles and the same challenges we do. And just like they were pivotal in God's strategy to defeat Satan, beloved, so are we. In that phrase, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Jesus is saying to us, pay attention, Word of Hope Christian Church. Pay attention to what I'm telling these churches in Revelation, because what I say to them, I am saying to you. Folks, this is not a game. This is deadly serious. Do you understand what I'm saying here? I'm, I'm saying that we're part of the book. We're part of God's grand plan to take back this world. And that's why we're reminded in Revelation 1-6 that Jesus made us to be a kingdom of priests for God his Father. We've been called to a cause that is bigger than our local congregation. We are a kingdom of priests, and we are part of something bigger than ourselves. We are representatives of a mighty God in a fallen world. Let me bring this to a close. Russ Blowers was once a preacher in a large congregation in Indianapolis. He was also a member of a local Rotary Club. Apparently, every time the Rotary met, they had a different club member give a brief statement about his job. When Russ's turn came, he said this, and I quote, Hi, I'm Russ Blowers. I'm with a global enterprise. We have branches in every country in the world. We have our representatives in nearly every parliament and boardroom on the earth. We're into motivation and behavior alteration. We run hospitals, feeding stations, crisis pregnancy centers, universities, publishing houses, and nursing homes. We care for our clients from birth to death. We are into life insurance and fire insurance. We perform spiritual heart transplants. Our original organizer, 
owns all the real estate on Earth, plus an assortment of galaxies and constellations. He knows everything and lives everywhere. Our product is free for the asking. There's not enough money to buy it. Our CEO was born in a hick town, worked as a carpenter, didn't own a home. He was misunderstood by his family, hated by enemies, condemned to death without a trial, and arose from the dead, and he lives in heaven, and one day he'll return to earth as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I talk with him every day. End quote. Beloved, my point is this. We are not just a small congregation in a moderately sized community. We are part of a grand scheme to take back this world, a mighty plan to bring Satan to his knees and break down the gates of hell. You are more than what you appear because you serve a God who intends to use you for more than what this world thinks is possible. And he's calling you today to stand against evil. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.